Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you've been listening and paying attention to our weekly epistle readings, that's the New Testament reading that's not the gospel reading, our epistle readings over the last several months, you've been knowing, you would know that we've been working through the book of Romans since we celebrated Pentecost on Memorial Day weekend. Specifically, we've been covering Paul's writings in Romans chapter 4 through 8. And today, in a very real way, we have reached the very pinnacle of the book of Romans. Some theologians might disagree, but this is actually the pinnacle of the book of Romans, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because Paul reveals God's endgame to us here. Everything that he's been working on from chapter 1 up until now, he's been taking us on this wonderful journey sometimes a little bit confusing or convoluted, especially living in the day and age that we live in. But it's a journey that we as Christians are all on because everything that Paul has written about was revealed in one way. It was revealed in and through the person of Jesus. You see, Paul has laid out the workings of God, starting with humankind's rebellion from God in the Garden of Eden. Paul has showed how everyone... Absolutely everyone has failed to live up to God's purpose and command. No matter how hard we try to work on that purpose and command in our own life by our own selves, we're always going to fall short. And so, we stand condemned. We stand condemned before God. We are under his wrath. We cannot do it alone. To really try to put us in a position to capture what's happening this morning, I'd like you to do something for me. Imagine. Use your imagination. I know it's early. Use your imagination. Picture yourself standing before the throne of God in his legal court in heaven. God is the judge, Satan the accuser, the prosecutor, of course, and you are the defendant, and you're waiting to be tried for the things you did or did not do in this life. Imagine Satan calling witness after witness before the court, and every single one of them has something bad to say about you. And every bad thing they say, your head sinks lower and lower in shame as you recall some of those things that you had forgotten, some of those things that you should have done in your life, and some of the things that you shouldn't have done in your life. Satan calls before the court all those people who you gossiped about, All those people who you thought were different from you, and so you wouldn't accept them and their viewpoint. Satan calls before you a hungry family who needed food, but you were just too busy to pay them any attention. You were too busy with your own needs, your own wants, your own interests. You were living in your own little world. Then comes that lonely widow that was expecting a visit, but you were too busy. The parade of witnesses goes on and on until finally all of your sins of commission and omission have been vividly exposed before the court. And more than anything else, you, you just want to kind of shrivel up and run into a hole somewhere and hide and just wait it out. Finally, after Satan is done parading all those things you've done in your life before you, God, the judge, speaks up. And he asks if you, the defendant, have anything to say on your behalf. For a brief moment, you consider what you might be able to give some excuses about your behavior, but then you realize who you're talking to. It's God. You swallow hard. You begin shaking your head and say, No, God, I don't have anything to say on my behalf. 
Just then, the counsel for the defense, Jesus himself, stands up, approaches the bench, and makes this one simple statement. He says, this one has trusted in me. I have paid the penalty for each and every sin. A stunning turn of events. God himself taking on human flesh and paying the debt of our sin and making us right before God the judge. Paul said it so well in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It says it all. God makes us right with him through no action of our own. It's completely and totally by his grace, nothing else. And when our heart is captured by God and the grace that we have from him, it falls in love with God. It falls in love with Jesus and our allegiance now is changed from the things of the world to the things of God. Where once we sought out the things of the world only, we now seek God. We live for God. We desire Him, His rule, and His reign in our lives and in this world. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit establishes kind of a base of operations in our heart, where He is continually working at putting to death the desires of our own flesh and of the world so that we can focus more on God's desires for us. Paul, throughout the beginning chapters of the book of Romans, has been working us towards showing us what God is up to in our lives and the lives of those, all those who love him. God is conforming us into the image and likeness of Jesus. Here to think about that statement for a moment. Just think about how spectacular a claim that is, that God is conforming you, he's molding you, he's shaping you, he's refining you so that you will become more like Jesus. That is God's end game. That is what Paul is sharing with us today. God wants you to be more like Jesus each and every day as you go closer and closer to heaven. He wants you to grow closer to Jesus in this life and in your eternal life with him. But we have to caution this. We have to be careful as we approach this biblical text from the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. We love verse 28, and it's quoted by so many, so many Christians today. In fact, I still remember it as one of the 120 Bible verses I think I had to memorize to be confirmed. Yeah, you kids, you've got it easy today. I think I counted, and I think that was 42 years ago that I was confirmed. Here's what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But if we don't read this carefully, we can interpret this as saying something to the equivalent of, well, if I love God, then everything is going to work out well for me. Which, in a sense, it's true. I mean, we proclaim that as Christians, ultimately God is going to have the last word in our lives. And every event in this world is controlled by God for good. We proclaim that all the evil that was ever committed is going to be unmade and overturned one day. We proclaim that someday the blind will see, the lame will leap, the dead will be raised, and so on and so forth until God comes. And when we take the long view... We can easily say that 
everything will work out for my good. But if we don't keep that long view in mind, and it's hard in this day and age to keep that long view in mind, isn't it? If we don't keep that long view in mind, there are a few concerns that we need to work through. Concern number one is, what is my definition of good? Because oftentimes my definition of good doesn't have the long view in mind. I want it now, right? Immediate gratification. Oftentimes my idea of good concerns only what I immediately see in front of me and what I want, my desires. If I love God, then everything I want and desire and everything I consider good will come to me if I read verse 28 that way. Not what Paul is saying at all. Because, friends, God is not in the business of giving us our every heart's desire. He is in the business of transforming our hearts to desire Him above everything else. And that is the view that we've got to keep in mind when we read this passage and when we share that to other people. My second concern about the passage is that not everything is good. Bad things are inescapable in this life. Jesus even said, you follow me, you will have trouble. Everyone, at some point in time in their life, is going to have to deal with suffering. We're all going to have to deal with pain and sorrow along the way. Everyone is going to be confronted with the reality of evil and death in their life, even a close death sometimes. We cannot sugarcoat these things. We cannot simply say that they're good. It would just be wrong of me to say to a family who has just lost their 42-year-old wife and mother to the ravages of cancer that, well, this is a good thing. You should be happy. She's now free from pain and suffering. The last part is true, but I can't just call it good and leave it at that. It would be wrong for me to say to parents who have a child that's just suffered some traumatic injury, well, this is a good thing because, you know, it's God's will. There's a purpose behind it, so just rejoice in it. No, my friends, there are things in this world that are not good. And we're going to be confronted with those things. We cannot simply sugarcoat them. We can't excuse them. We've got to wrestle with them honestly. And the final concern that I have with interpreting this text inappropriately is that the good that we receive then becomes conditional on how much I love God. That's how a lot of these television preachers do it, right? Your life hasn't turned around to be like you want it to be. You just don't have enough faith. You don't have enough love for God. Your finances haven't turned around to where you want them to be. Well, you maybe haven't taken that first step. You're not tithing enough. You've got a lack of faith in God. You've got to have more faith, they say. You've got to have more love. Show God your faithfulness, and he's going to rain down blessings on your life. Effectively, if we keep listening to this and we buy into this, our train of thought goes, well, everything relies on me then. But no. Paul chooses his words so carefully to convey this thought. If your heart has been captured by God's grace, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. The Spirit of God dwells within you because you trust in God and what Jesus did on that cross more than you trust in your own self. God will take every circumstance in your life, everything that is happening to you, every good thing, every bad thing, every moment of triumph and every moment of tragedy, and he's going to use them for your benefit. He will use them for good. 
Of course, we kind of need to understand what the author Paul means when he says things are good. Because that good cannot be defined according to our Western materialistic thought. That good cannot be defined as everything's hunky-dory. I have health, wealth, I have perfect relationships. No, Paul doesn't say that at all. What Paul does do is define good in the next verse. You can't just read verse 28 and stop there. You've got to go to 29 as well. Verse 29 says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Here in these two verses, Paul is showing us the end game. Paul is showing us what God intends. Those whom God foreknew. Realize that it doesn't say God knew some things about you ahead of time, like how you're going to respond to the gospel. He doesn't say that. He says God knew you. He knew you and he knows you today. Completely and totally. And he has predestined you to be molded into the image of Jesus, to put you on Jesus' team. That is the good that God is working for in your life. That is the good that God is using the joys and the challenges in your life for. God is conforming you into the image and likeness of Jesus. That is the ultimate good, to become like Christ. And friends, it is not something that we can do ourselves. It is something only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can do as they are all combining their efforts in our lives. Kind of makes you feel a little important, right? To think that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in your life right now. Today, as you sit here this morning, as you watch online, God is working on you so hard. As Paul's train of theology leads us to what people call the golden chain of verbs in verse 30, which says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul basically summarizes everything he's been telling us throughout the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Because friends, this is our status as Christians. We are going through all of that right now. And it isn't up for debate. God has predestined us. He has called us. He has justified. And he has glorified us. He has done all these things. Why? So that we can be transformed from the inside out to be like Jesus. So I want to spend just a moment to think about the implications of this in your life. First, I want to talk to those who may be wondering about this Christianity thing and whether or not this has anything to do with you, whether it has any impact on you. Because I know there's a lot of folks out there that are critical and skeptical about the church. I know there's people out there that are skeptical about Christians in general because we don't often live up to the ideals of our founder, right? But the good news for us is that God isn't finished with us yet. We are still in the transformation process. Wouldn't you like him to transform you? Yeah. Christians are imperfect people. We are sometimes callous, uncaring, ungrateful. We're sometimes hypocrites. Our hearts are undergoing transformation. So don't look at us. Look at Jesus. And wouldn't you want to be like him? 
Wouldn't you want to have that purpose and drive that goes beyond simply existing and earning as much as you can so that you can do the things you want to do before your time on the earth has ended? Wouldn't you like to know that all the work that you've done in your life has meaning and purpose in the big scheme of things? We're told throughout Scripture, God has put you every place that you've ever been. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know that every path that he's led us on has been a journey to what? To transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. You put your trust in Jesus. When you put your trust in what he's done by pouring out his love for the world, by taking the wrath that you and I, oh, we deserve it so much, by dying for your sin, rising to new life, showing us how it's going to be for us one day, God will start working to make you as loving, as determined, as caring, compassionate, and full of the desire of justice and peace as Jesus was in his life. Would you like to become more like Jesus? Put your trust in him. Receive what was freely given to you. So then I want to spend a moment talking about those who have already started this journey of faith with Jesus. Those who have already placed their trust in him. Those who consider themselves Christian. Hopefully that's most of us. Let me ask you. Do you see each and every day that you are becoming more like Christ? Do you find yourself seeking him and his will in your life? Do you find yourself wanting to do the things that he did? Do you find yourself wanting to explain God's word and bring people to the love of God like Jesus did? Do you find yourself wanting to serve your community and your church, serving the needs of people, ministry, and sharing the gospel? Do you find yourself becoming less judgmental and able to relate to and care for those who maybe don't share your belief system or your own point of view, doing so without compromising your own beliefs, of course? Do you get a sense of joy welling within your heart as you think about Jesus, as you pray, as you meditate, as you Bible study, as you do all of those things? Do you pray earnestly and deeply to God that he will make you more like Jesus? Friends, the gospel brings transformation. It brings transformation to our hearts and our lives and due to the great commission that we have, it then affects those around us who we witness to. Because God has poured out his life for you. God, on that cross, died so that you and I could live forever. And if that news touches your heart at all, if your heart is falling in love with God, he will use everything that happens to you to change you from the inside out to be more and more like Jesus every single day. I'm going to end where I started. Do you want to be like Jesus? Let us pray. Father, may the answer to this question in each of our lives be yes, a resounding yes. May we deeply desire Jesus. May we deeply fall in love with you so that you will work more and more in our lives. May we see your hand at work in all things, whether they be good from our perspective or bad or neutral. Be in our work and in our play, in our private and our public lives so that we can be comforted and excited that you are working everything to good, becoming more like Jesus, becoming more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray.
Amen.